Welcome to Post Pandemic. I'm Courtney Carthy. Each episode, we look at a specific part of society, culture, or the world and ask a guest to imagine what that might be like after all this is over. On this episode, Dr. Lauren Rosewarn from the University of Melbourne, Senior Lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences. Special subjects include gender, sexuality, politics, public policy, social media, pop culture, and technology. Her latest three books have been about film culture and practice, the most recent being Why We Remake. Let's talk film and TV production post-pandemic with Dr. Lauren Rosewarn. Thank you for having me. So uh, seven questions that every guest gets on post-pandemic. The first one being, what will be different about film and television production after the pandemic? Look, I think the most interesting thing is that it's paused for the moment. So what does that do in terms of once we recover, how much is in the can already versus audience expectations that new content actually taps into this moment? And I think that's a really interesting place to be because usually television can actually quite quickly respond to a world event. You know, it didn't take very long for Me Too type episodes to appear on television or uh, TV to address 9-11, whereas film has a much longer lag time. And yet, this is a very, very strange world event where film and TV is largely not being produced at this time and uh, because of the lockdown. And I think that's an interesting place to be in terms of what does the landscape look like when this is over. And can you imagine that there's lots of I mean, script writers, producers, directors running around all planning their, you know, big breakout post-pandemic television or film um, for when everything gets back to normal and we'll just have this sort of flood because there's been such a bottleneck of production because of well, social distancing and uh, industries being shut down. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about. Are we going to see a flood of pandemic narratives? I actually don't think that's going to be the case. And I say that because the unique nature of this world event has us hooped up in our homes doing nothing but living the pandemic, you know, whether it's through memes, social media feed, 24-hour cable news, we're so immersed in this space of pandemic, will we actually actively seek out media centred on this period of time when it's all over? My hunch is that you're going to see all of those creatives who are cooped up at home and doing nothing but, you know, trying to work out how to make sense of this will likely take the mood of how it feels to be locked up, to be socially isolated, to not be able to do all of those things that we take for granted. I imagine that will be channeled into productions, into narratives. I think, therefore, pandemic will become more of a metaphor, kind of like you saw for 9-11 or AIDS decades prior, rather than direct translation of this story. You will, of course, see a couple of telemovies and undoubtedly a a docuseries, but I don't think we'll see a flood of coronavirus stories. I get terrified that we're going to have something that equates to writers talking about how hard writing is and people that aren't writers just don't care about that a lot. Is there is there some sort of parallel that's going to come out of these creatives being cooped up 
for you know extended periods of time just waiting to get something out, whatever it is? Look, I think that's a really interesting, so, certainly something I've seen. I must follow too many creatives on social media, but this idea of that tussle between dead time and therefore surely we should all be producing stuff right now versus the fact that this is a very strange time to be creative and certainly in my case I've never felt more distracted and I'm usually manically productive (laughs) and yet this is just a time where I can't produce in any meaningful way I can do small things and I'm just wondering if that's an experience that's exclusive to me or whether that's one of the uh, I, I, I guess shared collective experiences, this, this strange burden of too much time versus not enough juice, whatever juice means right now. Mm. Well, going to the topic of your latest book, Why We Remake, I saw that Channel 7 in Australia is, is re-releasing a country practice on their streaming service, um, which might be saying something about Channel 7 at the moment, but <laughs> I, I, is it likely that we're going to see a flood of re-releases of all of these classic programs a la Seinfeld that's just been kicked around from network to network just for greater sums of money? Is is Could remakes fill the gap? Yeah, so there's certainly a, a, a few aspects or a few threads to this idea. So firstly, I think absolutely. We've all got too much time on our hands at the moment. We're consuming a lot of media and as a result – we're doing the streaming thing, which means that we're getting through a lot of content quickly. Equally, though, I think we're nesting through no choice of our own. And that's seeing us, I think, certainly seek out some of the more safe, consoling television of the past. And we could talk about nostalgia, but I think there's an element there of known quantities, that we're attracted to watching media, that we know how it ends and that it's safe. Because of all of the different sort of sentiments right now, safety is not one of them. We don't know how this is going to end and that's frightening. And that's also, I think, part of that reason as to why uh, showrunners, directors, film writers, etc., will likely steer clear of a direct translation of this story because I think partly it's got to do with people not wanting to be re-traumatised through a telling of something we lived firsthand. But I think also that flood of uh, re-releases is also partly because, again, new content isn't being produced. There's going to be a bit of a lag time between uh, all the new great shows starting and this pandemic ending as well. I suppose a, a rebirth of escapism is possible. We haven't had a, a moment like this one before. Most of the world events, when we look at how they've inspired uh, film and television, they tend to be events that have a start and a finish date. For example, 9-11. If you look at the media made after 9-11 in terms of film and TV, mostly it actually didn't touch the Twin Towers story. Mostly it wasn't about terrorism. What you ended up seeing in that decade after is things such as hyper-masculinity, hyper-Americana, and a resurgence in interest in superheroes, which is something that stayed with us. That idea, you know, you could get all psychoanalytic about it. Was it, for example, that we felt no one was there to save us during 9-11 and therefore we're looking at superheroes? Whatever it might be, 
generally it's not going to be something that tackles uh, pan the pandemic head on. Rather, it's going to be more about encapsulating how we feel and some of the things that we felt either were shortcomings or things that we missed. And I think right now, social contact is one of those things that we miss. And I think that will likely translate into narratives. Similarly, I think you'll see a lot of, you know, slews of, uh, the idea of, for example, clandestine meetings or contacting your exes because it's a pandemic, all of those weird things that I seem to be uh, intimately <laughs> through friends and, and, and even myself, what does pandemic do to our brains when you've got too much time on your hands and too much isolation? There's, I suppose there'd be a um, a fascinating sort of underground world to explore in that sort of, you know, called uh, disallowed contact um, or sort of movement, whether that's day or night. Can you have a sex life during the pandemic? For example, you know, and I, this is something I've, I've written about before, but it's also my own situation. If you live on your own and people living on their own is the rise, you know, the largest demographic or rising demographic in Australia, how are you navigating this? You know, it meets, it's one thing to say, well, you're cooped up with your family or your spouse, but there's a whole lot of us who are living on our own. What does that do? How do we navigate this when we're told potentially this is going to be our life for the next six months? Oh, God. Well, even more reliance on TV and film production then, I guess. <laughs> and look, I think you'll also see some interesting... I saw a casting call about a week ago uh, for some entrepreneurial uh, production company who were looking for people to film uh, stories in their own homes about what, it, what it's like to be in lockdown. And I imagine you'll see some of those kind of cheaply made reality TV shows when this is all over or, if this goes too long, released during pandemic. Mm. And do you think that there's an expectation that the the sort of lo-fi media will just be acceptable again because there's just simply sort of too much of it to ignore that the standard will drop and we're not looking for, you know, HD 24 sort of streaming stuff because we might have burnt through that content and now we're searching for something that maybe connects a little bit more with ourselves if this is going on for six months at a time. Look, I think there's a number of ways you can see this witnessed. I think uh, the rise of TikTok, where we used to think of that as something that young kids are doing in terms of recording their own weird dance routines, <laughs> whereas now it's got this sort of almost mainstream acceptability and, and use because uh, people are have the time to learn new technology in a way that you could easily dismiss it when you're bored and, you know, work for nine hours a day. I think that you're also seeing, and certainly I've experienced it, I do a lot of media and the expectation is always you go into the studio, whereas now I can't be going into the studio. So we're accepting, we're lowering our standards of what is an acceptable quality recording. And I think this really changes the world. In, and I'm not trying to be overly ambitious, but if you think about a whole lot of people who've been locked out of the labor market for things like mobility issues, and now that we're all actually thinking about this stuff in terms of necessity has led us to have to change the way we think about work and think about media production, suddenly things start to change. And I, I wonder whether that will be something that we retain or whether we actually default after this is all over. Question two, what do you think will become obsolete in film and television production? 
I've been thinking about this question, Courtney. I think the answer to this is a hard one, but the one that I'd like to think might might play out is an end to reality television. It won't happen, of course, but I think there's something to be said about a whole a planet basically being locked in their homes watching television about other people doing the same thing. So I'd like to think that we're probably going to exhaust our interest in voyeuristic content about the mundane lives of others, given that, you know, I think there there potentially was something not for me personally, but the audience are for reality television. I think there was something interesting about peeking into other people's lives. Whereas if you've been over saturated with that during, during the shutdown, I am, I'd like to think that you've, you know, burnt through your interest in that because you're also doing the same thing yourself. I mean, how does something like Gogglebox survive post pandemic? Do we really want to watch people watching television when we've just been doing six months of it? And just for for anybody who is um, not in Australia or the UK, can you just give a quick, uh, a brief overview of what Gogglebox is? Because it's a concept that I was completely sceptical about, but here in Australia, when you watch it on television, or you know, it becomes it it becomes very zeitgeisty. I think. Oh, how do I explain it? Okay, it's people watching television. And the cameras are watching their reactions. So, I mean, it's it, like all reality television. It's based around the concept of certain kind of personalities who serve as a, uh, I guess they're a conduit for our feelings around certain junk television. Not always junk, but they become the stars and and the dynamics between them while they're watching. I, I, I this isn't my type of uh, of entertainment product. I must admit, but I imagine it served a purpose that I just can't see continuing after this time. I'll probably be wrong. Okay, so there it is. Gogglebox, obsolete when we come out post-pandemic. Question number three, what will be different in your daily life on the other side? So the last time I was on campus, I teach at the University of Melbourne, was on the 13th of March. Ever since then, I've been doing all of my teaching online. And Melbourne University, like a lot of universities, not all, but like a lot of them in Australia, is not an online teaching university. We don't offer that. We're a campus experience. And yet, in rapid fire, myself and my colleagues had to get ready to be able to, uh, com- you know, offer our courses online. And that, literally, we're talking a period of three days to get up and running, I think has given us all, even if we didn't want them, a whole lot of skills about different delivery methods for courses. Courses. And I imagine that that's going to change the way a lot of my colleagues, I'm not sure necessarily me, I quite like an audience that's in the room rather than uh, teaching to a blank wall. But I think in terms of options of delivery, I think that's something that, that the universities are certainly going to be thinking about. Day to day when you know you get up and something's happening on Saturday, what, what's going to be different there, you think? Look, I like to think that after something horrible, we start to reassess priorities and that we start to think about all those things we took for granted. For me, for example, I go to the cinema a lot. 
you know, so something I haven't been able to do in over a month. Now, will I, every time I go to the cinema, you know, um, be grateful I can do this now and I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, uh, this being a situation that puts my health in peril? I don't know. I think humans have a very, very short memory and I imagine that that will fade. I think that once we have a couple of weeks of going and buying our coffee and sitting in a lap with a laptop in a cafe working, going to the cinema, going to the theatre, we'll just get back into our own routines. And I think that's a little bit sad, but also evidence of resilience on our part. We can't be too sentimental, I think, about this stuff. Question four, what positives do you see coming from COVID-19 when it's all over? So a couple of positives from my perspective are, one, we've acquired a whole lot of new skills that we probably would have dragged our heels in terms of acquiring. So for me, for example, uh, I really like the in-classroom experience of teaching. I hadn't taught online before. I had to quickly get a whole lot of skills together to do that. I did it. Therefore, even if I never do it again, I know how to do it. The other thing I think is more of a a labor market and demographic benefit where I think historically we have just been really resilient to, sorry, resistant to let people work from home. And that's really changed and and, uh, impacted things just like real estate prices, you know, the fact that people want to live where they work. If you're not actually having to come into work every single day, would you still live in the inner city? Would I still live in the, in the CBD? And I think that then starts to make people question things around quality of life, but also quality of work. Now, admittedly, this doesn't include everyone. That's a very much a white collar benefit, but that ability Mm. to rethink how we do work and how we do labor. These are conversations we've been having culturally for decades, yet, This pandemic has actually forced us to roll this out in rapid fire time, which I think has taught us if we really want something badly enough, we can make it happen. The accelerating nature of, um, oh, sorry, the accelerating effect of the pandemic on other things has been incredible to watch happen because it's just, it's, it's, it's happened so fast and people who are sort of resistant to ideas possibly the conservative government in Australia to, you know, socialism or universal basic income perhaps has has just, you know, cascaded in such a sort of a rapid fire rate around um, around our country here and obviously other countries overseas. It's incredible. Um, and it's been one of the sort of, um, I think, particularly among tech people, one of the bigger talking points um, and yeah, having, I think, video conferencing is the, uh, or working from home is the sort of pin-up change for that. Um, it's. Uh, uh, can you think of anything else um, you know, f- with the sort of um, your social science or political science hat on, anything else that has affected change so quickly that's not the parallel that's been drawn by um, publicly by other news media, which is that wartime or the global financial crisis? to put you on the spot? Because it's it's certainly something I've been thinking about in terms of what is a parallel example. Because even when you talk about war, even when you talk about the global financial crisis, when you talk about the rise of the internet, most of these examples didn't happen overnight the way the pandemic did. In the sense that you see these things coming and there's generally an acceleration in terms of the impact. But it's, it's generally not a light switch. This wasn't a complete light switch either. But for 
for most of us, we went from me literally being on campus on the 13th of March, then I won't be on campus again. And that's that. And I think that very quick decision making in terms of now we are in lockdown or now we are in shutdown or now that we're so socially isolating, that it doesn't have a lot of equivalent examples. I can't think of anything that's similar. But um, I think technology for me, and particularly workplaces who didn't have the internet and then had the internet, and I lived on both sides of that, that was a somewhat quick turnaround in terms of changing how we worked. But it wasn't every, it wasn't a light switch. Most workplaces didn't suddenly use the internet. And then it was staggered. It was things like people using, you know, internal emails, then moving forward. And that gives people time to adjust. We haven't had time to adjust here. And I think that's both really beneficial in some areas. And obviously it's a shock in others. I completely forgot about internal emails only. <laughs> <laughs> that was the very start of my career. I worked in politics and uh, it was the late 90s. I had just come out of high school and I remember that, you know, we had uh, the concept of internal emails, but if I wanted to use the outside internet, I needed to go to the parliamentary library. And it just, it's funny because it's something that I don't feel that old. How is, how, anyway... It's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to have been alive before and after. Yeah, and look, techno nostalgia is a complete you know another topic that doesn't need to be um, broached here. Question number five: How do you think you'll describe the pandemic, where we are now, right, sort of in the middle of it, hopefully, to somebody in the future that didn't experience it at all, has no memory of it? So a metaphor that I often talk about in, in a number of different contexts is the concept of the bonus round. I'm not someone who actually plays computer games uh, very often. Online Scrabble is about as much as I do. But as a kid, this concept of the bonus round, the idea that there is a a place that you can play and different rules apply is really how I see this moment, both for good and for bad. And I think that's how I would be explaining it in the sense that different rules applied and that's both how we work legal rules you know the fact that you can't do certain things legally anymore during this period i think also this concept of a bonus round really encapsulates it it's sort of it was a fixed moment in time where everything was completely strange that we didn't know what was happening where you couldn't go you know and buy toilet paper and all these things we took for granted but that it was contained and I wonder whether part of that is wishful thinking on my part to think that there is an end date to this that is clean because I'm actually not convinced intellectually that's the case I'd like to believe on whatever date pick one November 27 it's over I think that's a very unlikely situation, but I'd like to think in, you know, 10, 20 years time, I do get to at least say there was a beginning and an end to this, that it was contained and that it had bonus round properties, both for good and bad, where different rules applied. Uh, perhaps not film or TV series, but if you were to write a book, film or TV series about the global pandemic, what would you call it? What would I call it? That's, that's interesting. What would I call it? Look, I think isolation or uh, is probably what I'm feeling most acutely at this time. I'm not someone who has much health paranoia. I don't have pre-existing conditions that makes me particularly vulnerable, but I am 
in my own apartment, on my own, in my own head for too much time that is healthy for me. I already know my limits and I'm pretty much an introvert. I can entertain myself a lot, uh, but there is certainly uh, needs I have that I've perhaps not recognized until now in terms of social contact. And this is too much for me. And I think I've become needlessly introspective. So for me, I'm interested in what happens to one's brain when they have too much time in their own head. And I think isolation is probably a, a term that encompasses that. I'd be registering that pretty quickly. I think there might be a few other people that are going to jump on it. The last question, question seven, uh, what should we be paying attention to now that you think will affect life after the pandemic? It might be a choice that is being made by governments. It might be a social trend. Uh, I, yeah, I don't want to narrow it down because it's ideally something that is totally unexpected. But is there something that you see that you're know, like, this is going to be something to watch or to that will be influential later on for me i really and i'm someone who couldn't be less interested in real estate and yet for some reason this has been on my mind i really do think this gives people insight into how they want to live and work going forward and i think this will really change in terms of uh what home means for people and the fact that you've had to spend so much time in your home for some people will emerge from this thinking i actually really like to work from home and I want a job that has greater flexibility to allow me to do that because I'm very productive versus other people who have realized home is not the place that they can work and they actually need the stimulation of colleagues, in which case that might give them a heightened sense of valuing of the daily grind. And I think this is just something I've been thinking a lot about, but I think it will have impacts in terms of things such as housing prices and also real estate in terms of uh, companies need that much space you know I think of the University of Melbourne that feels sometimes like it owns half of the half of the city do we need this much space if we change the way we think about teaching and learning oh real estate's definitely a topic for a future episode so look out for that if you know somebody who would be a fantastic person to talk to either about real estate that is residential or real estate that is commercial please get in touch hello at postpandemic.com X, Y, Z. Uh, Dr. Lauren Rosewan, thank you so much for being on this episode. Um, is there uh, anything you can recommend? Would you like to actually, would you like to recommend something that you've watched recently, film or television that uh, might have gone under the radar for people? Yeah, the very, very, very best thing I've watched in perhaps ever, but certainly this year, was uh, the BBC series Years and Years. The only hesitation I've got in recommending it is that it's incredibly traumatic. And are we? Do you have the emotional wherewithal to watch a show about what happens to the planet over the course of 15 years, both good and severely bad? Okay. Oh, I don't know. It, it, it's enough to watch people congregate on television. <laughs> That's a little bit sort of like worrying for me at the moment, but um, years and years on the BBC. Sorry, SBS On Demand, you can watch it that way as well. For Australians, I think that is the quiet achiever of this um, period in time. Definitely. A lot of great stuff on SBS On Demand. Uh, and very nice, uh, very polite on Twitter as well they are, which found out the other day. We're getting off topic uh, and we should leave it there. 
Dr. Lauren Roseborn, thank you so much for joining us on post-pandemic. Um, have a uh, pleasant, solitary experience for the rest of the time, and we may catch up with you again solitary in the near future. Solitary experience once meant something else, didn't it? But now, alas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Courtney. Cheers. Dr. Rose Warren writes a lot of books, articles, and tweets. Her latest book is out now. It's called Why We Remake the Politics, Economics, and Emotions of Film and TV Remakes. Get to laurenrosewarn.com or check the show notes here for more. If you're enjoying post-pandemic, leave a review where you're listening. If you can, get in touch. If you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest, postpandemic.xyz. Post-pandemic is hosted by me, Courtney Carthy. Production is by Neely Media. Cover artwork by Studio Baker. And our theme music was created by Alex Shulgan. Alex Shulgan.